From New York, this is Democracy Now! A large number of injured have come to us. After the large explosion that shook the entire Jabalia refugee camp, hundreds of injuries, hundreds of martyrs. They were just sitting in their homes. They were targeted while they were in their homes. Israel's bombed Gaza's largest refugee camp, Jabalia, again, a day after massive Israeli airstrikes killed at least 50 Palestinians and wounded over 150, sparking new outrage over Israel's 26-day bombardment of the besieged territory. We'll speak with a humanitarian advocate who grew up in Jabalia. Actually, the bombing took place in the center of the heart of the, the refugee camp, where, where it's one of the most densely populated places in Gaza, while everyone knows is Gaza one of the most densely populated places on Earth. Then we'll speak to a longtime human rights attorney, Craig McIver, a top United Nations official in New York who's resigned, saying the U.N. is failing to stop what he calls a genocide unfolding in Gaza. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Gaza, Israel struck the densely populated Jabalia refugee camp again today, one day after Israeli air attack killed at least 50 people and injured another 150. This is a doctor who treated victims of the Jabalia attack at the Indonesian hospital, where surgeons had to operate in the hallways as the facility was overrun with patients. A large number of injured have come to us. After the large explosion that shook the entire Jabalia refugee camp, hundreds of injuries, hundreds of martyrs, they were just sitting in their homes. They were targeted while they were in their homes. Children, all martyrs, children, women, elderly, we have no idea what to do. They are injured everywhere. All the volunteers went down hand in hand just to help people. The World Health Organization's warning of an imminent public health catastrophe in Gaza, with some surgeries performed without anesthesia due to the dire shortage of medical supplies. Mohammed Abu Al-Kamsan, an engineer with Al Jazeera's Gaza Bureau, lost 19 members of his family, including his father and two sisters, in Israeli air raids on the Jabalia camp. Meanwhile, the first evacuations from Gaza through the Rafah border crossing with Egypt have begun. Officials are expected to let people with foreign passports and dozens of critically injured residents leave Gaza. The temporary border opening is part of a deal brokered by Qatar. In Washington, D.C., protesters on Tuesday repeatedly disrupted a Senate panel hearing for Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Their testimony was in support of President Biden's request for $106 billion to fund the militaries of Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and to militarize the U.S.-Mexico border. This is Anne Wright, former U.S. Army colonel and Code Pink member. Kids dead. Come on, I'm an army colonel. I'm a former diplomat. I resigned on that war in Iraq that you talked about. That was a terrible thing, and what they're doing right now in supporting Israel's genocide of Gaza is a terrible thing, too. Stop the war! Cease fire now! This 
This comes as House Republicans are proposing stripping $14 billion in IRS funding to fulfill Biden's request for $14 billion for Israeli military aid. Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden said in response, quote, House Republicans are using aid for Israel as a political pawn in order to slash taxes for their wealthy donors. Making it easier for rich people to cheat on their taxes isn't an offset. It adds to the deficit, he said. Newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson has also said he wants to sever funding for Ukraine from funding for Israel, setting up a likely showdown with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. On Tuesday, senators confirmed former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew as the U.S. ambassador to Israel. At his confirmation hearing, Lew said Israel's security is paramount. Meanwhile, the White House evoked the white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville in 2017 when answering questions about Palestinian rights protesters. This is White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responding to Fox reporter Peter Ducey. You guys don't talk about extremists all the time. It is usually about MAGA extremists. So what about these protesters who are making Jewish I've students feel very, unsafe very on college campuses? Are they extremists? I've been very, very clear. We are calling out any form of hate. The head of the King Center, Dr. Bernice King, lawyer and daughter of Martin Luther King Jr., responded to a post by comedian Army Schumer, Amy Schumer, who shared a video of Dr. King condemning anti-Semitism and defending Israel's right to exist. Bernice King wrote, quote, "'Certainly my father was against anti-Semitism. He also believed militarism, along with racism and poverty, to be among the interconnected triple evils. I am certain he would call for Israel's bombing of Palestinians to cease,' she said. Here in New York, the longtime human rights attorney Craig McIver, director of the New York Office of U.N. High Commissioner of Human Rights, and stepped down in protest over the U.N.'s failure to stop the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, which he called a textbook case of genocide. He blamed the United States, the U.K., and much of Europe for its complicity. We'll be joined by Craig McIver later in the broadcast. Meanwhile, Chile and Colombia have recalled their ambassadors to Israel, while Bolivia has cut diplomatic ties with Israel, citing crimes against humanity. Based on its principled stance of respect towards life, Bolivia has decided to break diplomatic relations with the Israeli state in repudiation and condemnation of the aggressive and disproportionate Israeli military offensive taking place in the Gaza Strip, which threatens international peace and security. In Belgium, Transportation unions have called on their over 3 million members to refuse to aid in the delivery of weapons to Israel, citing genocide against Palestinians. The unions called for a ceasefire and asked the Belgian government to not allow arms to travel through Belgian ports. Yemen's Houthi militia said it launched air attacks in southern Israel Tuesday in response to the, quote, brutal Israeli-American aggression in Gaza, unquote. Separately, Israel said it thwarted air attacks but did not disclose the source. This comes after Saudi Arabia said four of its soldiers died last week while fighting Houthi rebels on its border with Yemen. The U.S. announced this week it's sending an additional 300 troops to the Middle East to, quote, support regional deterrence efforts. 
In Iran, authorities have detained prominent human rights lawyer Nasrin Sotudeh. She was arrested and severely beaten by police Sunday while she attended the funeral of 16-year-old Armita Garavand, who died of brain injuries last week after she was reportedly assaulted by Iran's morality police at a Tehran subway station in early October. Police also attacked and arrested other activists and mourners at the funeral as they demanded justice for Garavand. Satuda has been arrested in prison several times before. Burma is formalizing efforts to repatriate Rohingya refugees who fled genocide and persecution since 2017. Burmese officials met with Rohingya refugee families in Bangladesh Tuesday to discuss the repatriation plan, which was negotiated by Burma, Bangladesh and China back in April. Burma said it's ready to accept the return of some 3,000 Rohingya refugees by December. But refugees have refused to go back, fearing further violence. Rohingya leaders said certain demands should be met, including resettlement to their own land and being granted citizenship. Rohingya community members have also said they've been threatened with accepting repatriation, while Burmese officials claim the move would be voluntary. About a million Rohingya refugees live in Bangladesh. Pakistani police have started arresting Afghans as part of a nationwide crackdown on immigrants. Over four million Afghans live in Pakistan. Islamabad says nearly two million of them are undocumented. Tens of thousands of Afghans were forced to return to Afghanistan in the last month since Pakistani authorities threatened them with mass deportation if they didn't leave by November 1st today. Many Afghans, who've called Pakistan home for decades, fear having to live under Taliban rule and say they have nothing to go back to in Afghanistan. We are helpless. We have nothing in our homeland. No home. Nowhere to go. For the past two days, we've been waiting here, but no one is doing anything about our crossing over. What should we do? Now that we have come here, we should at least be allowed to cross over. In Kenya, King Charles acknowledged Britain's, quote, deepest regret for its, quote, abhorrent and unjustifiable acts of violence committed against the former colony. But King Charles stopped short of an apology as he delivered his speech during a banquet as part of his four-day trip to Kenya. The Kenya Human Rights Commission had called on Charles to offer an unequivocal public apology. The group estimates the Mau Mau revolt in central Kenya between 1952 and 1960 killed or maimed some 90,000 Kenyans. Another 160,000 were detained. The U.K. agreed in 2013 to a £20 million settlement for the atrocities it committed. This is the great-grandson of King Kohlel Arap Samoy, a Nandi chief who fought to end British colonial rule at the turn of the last century. In fact, we don't request. In fact, we have to demand a public apology from the government of British of, because of the atrocities they meted on our people. The, the first one is apology. After the apologies, we also expect a, a, a reparation. And the Michigan Attorney General's Office is closing its criminal pursuit of public officials responsible for the Flint water crisis, including former Governor Rick Snyder. It's been nearly a decade since Michigan leaders switched Flint's drinking water source to the Flint River to save money. The water corroded Flint's aging pipes, causing poisonous levels of lead to leach into the drinking water, causing many residents in the majority black city, particularly children, to develop health problems. An outbreak of Legionnaire's disease killed at least 12 people. 
And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, Israel's bomb Gaza's largest refugee camp, Jabalia, again, a day after its massive airstrikes killed at least 50 Palestinians and wounded over 150, sparking new outrage over Israel's 26-day bombardment of the besieged territory. We'll speak with a humanitarian advocate who grew up in Jabalia. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Massive Israeli airstrikes on Gaza's largest refugee camp, Jabalia, killed at least 50 Palestinians Tuesday and wounded over 150 others, sparking new outrage over Israel's 26-day bombardment of the besieged territory. Israel bombed the refugee camp again today. Numerous residential buildings collapsed in Tuesday's blast, trapping families under rubble. One engineer from Al Jazeera, Mohammed Abu Al-Khamsan, reportedly lost at least 18 members of his family, including his father and two of his sisters. A long line of dead bodies wrapped in white sheets were placed outside the Indonesian hospital in the refugee camp, where doctors scrambled to treat survivors. A large number of injured have come to us after the large explosion that shook the entire Jabalia refugee camp. Hundreds of injuries, hundreds of martyrs. They were just sitting in their homes. They were targeted while they were in their homes. Children, all martyrs. Children, women, elderly. We have no idea what to do. They are injured everywhere. All the volunteers went down hand in hand just to help people. Israeli officials acknowledge carrying out the airstrike on the refugee camp, describing it as a, quote, wide-scale strike targeting a Hamas commander accused of helping to orchestrate Hamas's October 7th attack inside Israel that resulted in the deaths of about 1,400 people in Israel and the capture of over 220 hostages. The attack on Jabalia came as the United Nations and aid groups issued new dire warnings about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. James Elder of UNICEF said Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. The numbers are appalling. Reportedly now more than 3,450 children have been killed. Staggeringly, this number rises significantly every single day. Gaza has become a graveyard for children. It's a living hell for everyone else. And yet the threats to children go beyond bombs and mortars. And I want to speak briefly now on, on two of those, water and trauma. 
uh, the more than one million children of Gaza have a critical water crisis. Gaza's water production now, its capacity is at 5% of its daily output. So child deaths to dehydration, particularly infant deaths to dehydration, are a growing threat. Earlier today, the Rafah border crossing with Gaza was opened to allow dozens of Egyptian ambulances in to evacuate injured patients. We go now to Gaza, where we're joined by Youssef Hamash, advocacy officer in Gaza for the Norwegian Refugee Council, who lives in the Gaza Strip with his wife and two children. He's from the Jabalia refugee camp, but is joining us today from Khan Yunus. Yusuf, thanks so much for joining us again. Um, can you you grew up and you were born in the Jama, the Jabaya, the uh, um, the refugee camp. Can you talk about the significance of what took place yesterday? So, yes, broadly, I'm born and raised in Jabalia camp as a refugee. And Jabalia camp is not a place that for us to consider. It's more than a place. And uh, place that they, where the attack is the center of the Jabalia camp. It's the heart of the camp. And everyone knows that Gaza is one of the most densely populated places on Earth. Jabalia camp is the most densely populated, the most densely populated place in Gaza. So, and for people who doesn't know how it's Jabalia camp, it's a block of concrete. Houses are next to each other. And the widest street in Jabalia camp is half a meter. And 90% of the houses are one, one roof. It's one floor. And it's one of the most crowded places on Earth. The attack yesterday, the massive amount of casualties, it was, first of all, the, the massive bombardment. And also, because it's a very populated place, and I don't think... Both the Israelis really care about that. When they want to target someone, and I'm not sure about these accusations, who they are targeting, what's going on there, but it's a really horrific situation. And if you look to the images, what was going on, it's it's really horrible. Can you respond to the Israeli military saying they bombed, they aimed for the alleyways, not the buildings, um, and that they were going for one of the commanders of Hamas, and that people should have left, that they warned Palestinians to leave northern Gaza and go south? First of all, if they are pushing people to leave, where people should go. First of all, I was lucky because I have relatives in the, in the south in Khanunis. But thousands of people are in the streets or in Norway schools, and no, there is no enough place for anyone anymore in the south. And even there is no safe passage for people to move from the north, from the north toward the south. People cannot leave their houses without knowing where they are going. And this is one thing. If, if you live in Jabalia, it means that you can handle your situation and keep up. And handling your needs in Jabalia, if you are going to a new place without somewhere to go and even doesn't know where to go, how people would keep up when they are displaced? This is, this is completely illegal, first of all. And you cannot push more than one million people to move in a few days. And until now, for example, since a few days, even the roads have been cut between. They split Gaza for, in two parts. How people are going to go from Jabalia in the north or Gaza City towards the south? This is the first thing. And the other thing, I, 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 I think the images and what the amount of casualties can answer 
what the Israeli forces are saying. I wanted to play for you a clip um, of the IDF, Israeli Defense Force spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, who appeared on CNN, where he was interviewed by Wolf Blitzer. But you know that there are a lot of refugees, a lot of innocent civilians, men, women and children in that refugee camp as well, right? This is the tragedy of war, Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been saying for days, move south. Civilians are not involved with Hamas. Please move south. Yeah, I'm just uh, trying to get a little we, bit more information. Uh, you knew there were civilians there. You knew there were refugees, all sorts of refugees. But you decided to still drop a bomb on that refugee camp attempting to kill the Hamas commander. By the way, was he killed? I can't confirm yet. There will be more uh, updated. He, yes, we know that he was killed. Um, about the civilians there, we're doing everything we can to minimize it. See if you can respond to the IDF Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht. I just, I just need to understand what they did to minimize their loss casualties, the loss of civilians. What, and asking people to leave is, is not, a, it's not a justification. This is not a justification to, to use this massive amount of bombardment targeting something. And even then, they cannot confirm it. And it's, it's really weird how world is looking to that and how they are trying to justify the, the killing of civilians. This is, this is unacceptable how to justify killings of that amount of civilians by saying that you ordered everyone to evacuate. First, people need even, even this is illegal to push, these people are forced to flee. And also, there is no place that people can go to. And even here in Khanoun, there's people who are displaced, even like me, we are facing tragedy to provide our daily need like water and bread and it's 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 everything is challenging here because there is not enough space in the south to host all these hundreds of thousands of people who fled from Gaza and the north people who decided to stay there they don't have any other solution they don't have any other options and there is no nothing on this planet can justify killing civilians you are in Khan Yunus, Yusuf Hamash, where you moved. Um, were you living in Jabalia? I'm born and raised in Jabalia camp. Yes, I live in Jabalia. And talk about who lives there. Talk I, about I the refugee camp, this largest <laughs> refugee camp, how it was established. So this, this all the, uh, the refugees camps all across Gaza have been established after the Nakba 1948, and then it had been expanded more and more. It became small cities. It's a block of concrete. It's not like the other camps that we see on the planet, like what's seen now in Khanunis, for example, they had designated another camp, which is a tent camp. No, it's a small city within the city as the, the, the refugee camp. And it's very densely populated. I know every corner there. I know the, the people who live there are refugees. And this is generations of refugees who are living in this refugee camp who is getting expanded day by day because the amount of people are getting more and more and there is no solutions also for refugees so it's became not a refugee camp it's became a small city within a city this is how the camp it's not it's different than other camps on, on the world so you moved with your family to other family in khan yunis um after the Israeli military uh, told people to move south, dropped thousands of pamphlets um, and said they would consider you a terrorist if you didn't, um, 
They bombed Khan Yunus, is that right? They bombed places in the South where they said you should go. Even here in Khan Yunus, it's not safe. Yesterday, 50 meters away from us, they bombed their family. 18 members were killed. And it take us until the daylight to evacuate people who were killed, and, and most of them were children. There is no safe place all over Gaza. And this also another, another reason why people are not leaving. It's not safe in the north. It's not safe in the middle area. It's not safe in the south also. If all across Gaza Strip, the bombardment didn't stop since the first day. So this is another reason why people are not moving from the north, because it's, it's not different. Every day there is a lot of bombardment in Rafah and Yunis, in Deir el-Balak, in the middle area, in Gaza City, and the north. There is no difference wherever you are in Gaza City. You are always thinking when you are going to be the next target. So you're there in Khan Yunus. In an interview you did with Channel 4, uh, you said it took you five hours to look for one liter of fuel in Khan Yunus. If you can talk about why fuel is important and respond to what the Israeli military is saying, why they're not letting any fuel come in, which runs hospitals, of course, saving lives, the incubators that have uh, premature babies in them, etc., what this fuel shortage looks like for you, uh, not only you as a person, a Palestinian in Gaza, but as advocacy officer uh, in Gaza for the Norwegian Refugee Council, where you're responsible for so many refugees. So, so unfortunately, even as a humanitarian actors, we cannot do our role because there is no difference for, between anyone here. Everyone is under the same circumstances. Fuel is very important because there is no electricity at all. Even when we have one week, one time per week, we have water from the municipality because they have schedule for each area. We need the fuel to push the water from the municipality lines up to the houses. That's why it, everything is challenging. And it's a matter, it's a layer of complexities. If you have water, you need fuel to push it to the house. If we to find water, you need to find to find a way to get it, and it's almost impossible. Five hours, and I was lucky to do it. Since three days, we are trying to find another liter, and we could, I couldn't make it. I was lucky because I found someone who's a friend of mine, and his car was having some fuel. Now, unfortunately, since three days, we don't have fuel. Today, we have the water again that from the municipality lines, and unfortunately, we couldn't push it to the house. So we have had to fill small gallons, and we had to create a lines of us inside the house to handle each other to push to get to carry the water to the house tanks. Everything is challenging and day by day everything became more impossible. And it's a mat it's layers above layer of complexities and needs. We don't have electricity, we don't have fuel, we don't have water and we are lacking everything. We, we don't have access for our basic needs and unfortunately we don't see that efforts to push to allow for fuel for other basic needs for Palestinians. Even these trucks that came in, came in on a daily basis, the maximum amount of trucks reached 50 trucks per day. Before this war started, Gaza was having more than 500 trucks per day without that amount of need from the war. So it's, it's really unacceptable how the world is behaving toward that. It's not a victory that they succeeded to manage to get these trucks to come. This is not a victory for anyone. This is a drop in the ocean of needs.
Yusuf Hamash, um, they cut off communication again. We didn't even know if we'd be able to talk to you, but now um, the electricity, at least where you are, is back on. Can you talk about the significance of this cutting off of cell phone and electricity that also happened over the weekend, what it means for you, and also what's happening at Rafa so today? So this is the second round. But first start with, yes, the cut off. So this is the second time that so that this is this is the first uh, the second time that they isolated us from the rest of the planet. We didn't have access to phone calls, internet, or even radio stations. So literally, we didn't know what was happening in the next three. We were completely isolated inside our houses, and here to find internet. I think there is a lot of chaos around me because I need to go to a cafe where there is at least they have generator, they have some electricity, so I can have access to internet to have this interview with you. Everything is challenging, and being isolated from the rest of the world, we wasn't knowing what's happening in the north or in Gaza City or anywhere else in Gaza. We were just completely in a blackout. This is, I don't know how it's acceptable to do this to us, and I don't think we, we, are, we are very good people in Cuba. We have a very good Cuban mechanism, but we cannot cope with this. We don't have communication. It's lacking us from everything. And this is very dangerous, especially for the emergency situations. You cannot call an ambulance. When they did it a few days ago, it was for two days, 36 hours, people who were trying to get an ambulance after an attack, or even if they have a medical situation inside the house, they had to go to the hospital, informing them and bring them back with them to the house to take someone who is, for example, if they are sick or even if they are injured from an attack. It's an impossible situation without connection. And this is the second time we see it. This time it was around 14 hours. And let's hope, because we cannot find alternatives, let's hope they are not going to keep continuing doing that, But because this is not only affecting us as people who are became more isolated, it's affecting the emergency situation, emergency response from the medical teams and civil affairs teams. It's really dangerous. How old are your children, Yusuf? Yusuf, you're frozen. Um, how old are your children? So I have two children, Elias, five years old, and Ahmed, two and a half. And hopefully we will manage to stay alive during this chaos and madness. And they can see a brighter future. And because my son Ahmed is two years old, he have witnessed a lot. My five years old daughter witnessed more than a lot for a child to witness from this madness around us. And I feel, again, I keep saying that to myself, and I can tell you clearly, I feel guilty because I, bo I, I brought my children in this place. I feel responsible towards my children, and I regret having them in this chaotic situation. Yusuf Hamash, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Advocacy officer in Gaza for the Norwegian Refugee Council, uh, born in the Jabalia refugee camp. We have 30 seconds. Your final message. Um, we are based here in the United States uh, to the U.S. government, to American population, and also globally around the world. I think the world needs to react and to act seriously, stopping this madness. It's not. It, I think it's more than enough for us to suffer and to see what we are seeing currently. 
world need to stand ahead their responsibilities toward us as a human being it's more than enough since the first day now we stopping we are we are already stop calculating days because it's all similar all it's amount of bombardment and horror nights so world need to stand ahead their responsibilities toward us as human beings Thank you, Yusuf Hamash, for making the effort, um, despite uh, all of these difficulties, to speak to us today. Again, Yusuf Hamash is the advocacy officer in Gaza for the Norwegian Refugee Council. Uh, grew up, was born in the Jabalia refugee camp, the largest refugee camp in Gaza. When we come back, we'll be joined by Craig McIver top U.N. official in New York who's resigned, saying the U.N.'s failing to stop what he calls a genocide unfolding in Gaza. Back in a minute. Giving up everything I've opened up my eyes for this Giving up everything See the whole magnificent emptiness Give what I Giving Up Everything by Natalie Merchant. Natalie Merchant recently signed an open letter titled Artists Call for Ceasefire Now, alongside actors like Joaquin Phoenix, the playwright Tony Kushner, and Miranda July, the letter supported by Axfam America and ActionAid USA. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A top United Nations official in New York has resigned and accused the United Nations of failing to address what he calls a textbook case of genocide unfolding in Gaza. Craig McIver is a longtime international human rights lawyer who served as director of the New York office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. He'd worked at the United Nations since 1992 and lived in Gaza in the 1990s. In a letter addressed to the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, Craig McIver wrote, In Gaza, civilian homes, schools, churches, mosques and medical institutions are wantonly attacked as thousands of civilians are massacred. In the West Bank, including occupied Jerusalem, homes are seized and reassigned based entirely on race, and violent settler pogroms are accompanied by Israeli military units. Across the land, apartheid rules. Craig McIver went on to write, What's more, the governments of the United States, the United Kingdom, and much of Europe are wholly complicit in the horrific assault. Not only are these governments refusing to meet their treaty obligations to ensure respect for the Geneva Conventions, but they're, in fact, actively arming the assault, providing economic and intelligence support, and giving political and diplomatic cover for Israel's atrocities, unquote. 
On Tuesday, the U.N. released a statement about McIver's resignation, saying, quote, I can confirm he's retiring today. He informed the U.N. in March of his upcoming retirement, which takes effect tomorrow. The views in his letter made public today are his personal views, the U.N. said. Craig McIver joins us now in New York, the first day he's not working for the United Nations. Welcome to Democracy Now! Thank you, Amy. Good to be here. So talk about why you left. Well, I originally registered my concerns in writing to the High Commissioner in March, as you heard from that uh, statement, in the wake of a wave of human rights violations on the West Bank, including the pogrom in Hawara uh, at that time. And at that time, I complained really about what I saw as a trepidatious response by many in the United Nations and an effort to try to silence some of the human rights critique of U.N. officials, including myself. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I admit to feeling a great deal of frustration and at that moment uh, indicating that I would be uh, resigning from the U.N. Uh, um, effective this month. So, of course, the situation got much worse since then, which is why I was, uh, particularly the events in Gaza, which is why I was compelled to write this latest letter to the High Commissioner to put on record my very serious concerns uh, about how we were failing to address the unfolding events in the occupied territories. What do you think the United Nations, the United States, the West, UK should be doing right now? Well, I think there is an obligation on the part of all member states of the United Nations, including those states in the West, to respond uh, in accordance with their obligations under international law, including international humanitarian law. My central point in the most recent letter was that we had effectively left international law behind when uh, the international community embraced the Oslo process, which uh, sort of raised up notions of political expediency above the requirements of international law. And that was a real loss uh, for uh, human rights in, in, in Palestine. I think there is an obligation on the part of all states, not just to respect international humanitarian law and international human rights law, but under the Geneva Conventions to ensure respect. And it's clear that many states, including the United States itself, have not only, uh, are not only in breach of their obligation to ensure respect vis-a-vis -vis those states over which they have influence, in this case Israel, but have been actively complicit, actively engaged in arming and diplomatic cover, uh, in political support, intelligence support, and so on. That is a breach of international humanitarian law. We need the opposite of that. We need all states, uh, members of the United Nations, to use whatever influence they have to ensure an end to these attacks on civilians in Gaza, to ensure as well accountability for the perpetrators, redress for the victims, protection for the vulnerable there. It's interesting, Amy, we have a formula at the United Nations that is applied to virtually every other conflict situation. But when it comes to the situation in Israel and Palestine, there's a different set of rules, apparently. And that's, a, I think, a big source of my frustration. Where is the transitional justice process? Where is the UN protection force to protect all civilians? Where uh, is the tribunal for um, accountability? Where is the action on the part of the Security Council, the only mechanism in the United Nations that has enforcement to ensure protection in the occupied territories? Obviously, every effort in the Security Council is vetoed by the United States uh, itself, a further indication of the kind of complicity about which I, uh, I am referring. And I think the other thing that needs to happen in the international community is that we have to abandon the failed paradigms of the past uh, on a political level and get back 
to the roots, which is international law, international human rights. What has happened in the context of the so-called Oslo process, the two-state solution, the UN quartet, is that they have acted effectively as a smokescreen behind which we have seen further and worsening dispossession of Palestinians, uh, massive atrocities such as those as we are witnessing uh, now, the loss of homes and land, further settlement activity. Uh, you know, it's an open secret inside the halls of the United Nations that the so-called two-state solution is effectively impossible now. There's nothing left for uh, a sustainable state for the Palestinian people and takes no account of the fundamental human rights of the Palestinian people. The new paradigm has to be one based upon equality of all people there, uh, equal rights for Christians, Muslims, and Jews. And that needs to be the new approach. And I think as well, uh, you know, it's interesting that this year we are commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights adopted in 1948. That same year, the Nakba occurred in Palestine and apartheid was adopted in South Africa. Uh, we have seen, because of a consistent international law and international human rights approach in the UN and the international community, that apartheid in South Africa uh, uh, fell. We did not take the same approach in Palestine. We've deferred to these political processes. And as a result, not only have we not seen an end to the oppression of the Palestinian people, we've seen a continuing worsening of the situation. So you're a longtime human rights lawyer. Um, I want you to respond. I played this already for Yusuf Hamash um, uh, in Gaza right now, in Khan Yunus, uh, to respond. But I'd like you to respond to it as well. Um, after Israel's attack on Jabalia yesterday, the IDF spokesperson, Israeli Defense Force spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, appeared on CNN and was interviewed by Wolf Blitzer. But you know that there are a lot of refugees, a lot of innocent civilians, men, women, and children in that refugee camp as well, right? This is the tragedy of war, Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been saying for days, move south. Civilians are not involved with Hamas. Please move south. Yeah, I'm just uh, trying to get we, a little bit more information. Uh, you knew there were civilians there. You knew there were refugees, all sorts of refugees. But you decided to still drop a bomb on that refugee camp attempting to kill the Hamas commander. By the way, was he killed? I can't confirm yet. There'll be more uh, updated. He, yes, we know that he was killed. Um, about the civilians there, we're doing everything we can to minimize so he's saying they're doing everything they can to minimize. Um, he's talking about Ibrahim uh, Biari, whom it identified, uh, Israel's identified as Hamas's commander of the Jabalia Center Battalion, uh, saying that he was killed um, in those recent strikes. Can you respond to every aspect of what he said? They were trying to get a high-value target, as they put it, and, um, and they are not trying to kill civilians. Well, I think what's important uh, in that interview is that is another of many indications of intent on the part of Israeli authorities that will be very important in a court of law. He has said very openly that they knew of the concentrations of civilians there, and yet, in violation of the principle of distinction in international humanitarian law, and on the pretext of uh, killing one uh, combatant, uh, wiped out the better part of an entire refugee camp densely populated um, refugee camp. And I think what's been interesting in this war is the very open statement of intents. I referred in my letter to the case for genocide, uh, which is happening now. And, you know, genocide is a very politicized term, often abused. But in this case, 
the hardest part uh, of proving genocide has been proven for us with these very open statements of genocidal intent by Israeli officials, including the prime minister and the president and senior uh, cabinet ministers and military officials, who in their public statements have indicated very clearly uh, uh, their intention not to distinguish between civilians and combatants uh, and to carry out the kinds of wholesale slaughter that we are witnessing um, in Gaza. That, that is not a justification in international law saying that there was a combatant there uh, for that very disproportionate use of firepower against what was a civilian target. And that's what we've been seeing in all of Gaza from the north to uh, the south. The other thing is this claim that, well, we told them to move south and therefore we can kill everybody who didn't move. This is an extremely dangerous and unlawful uh, a tactic that is being used. First, because we know that um, evacuations in Gaza in the best of times in this densely populated small territory uh, with 2.3 million civilians uh, crowded in with very limited infrastructure is a huge challenge. But most of Gaza has been bombed into rubble. It is just not physically possible for civilians to move en masse uh, in the ways that uh, Israel has required them to do so. And we know, already well documented, that when they do so, they're still subjected to bombings even in the south of the Gaza Strip. So all of this, it seems to me, is evidence of intent uh, and a prima facie case for violations of the war laws of war. Israel has called for U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres to resign after he said Hamas's October 7th attack did not happen in a vacuum. This is Israel's U.N. Ambassador, Gilad Erdan. Mr. Secretary General, the U.N. was established to prevent atrocities, to prevent such atrocities like the barbaric atrocities that Hamas committed. But the U.N. is failing the U.N. is failing, and you, Mr. Secretary-General, have lost all morality and impartiality. Because when you say those terrible words that these heinous attacks did not happen in a vacuum, you are tolerating terrorism. And by tolerating ter terrorism, you are justifying terrorism. That's Israel's ambassador to the United Nations. Craig McIver, your response. Well, of course, you can imagine why uh, the ambassador would want to start the clock only in October and to ignore the decades upon decades of persecution uh, against the Palestinian people in Gaza, in the West Bank, uh, in Jerusalem, inside Israel uh, proper. But that is not the kind of assessment that leads to peace or leads to uh, an improved situation on on the ground. The Secretary General was doing his job. Uh, he had condemned um, uh, the loss of civilian life in the uh, Hamas attack, and he also criticized uh, not just what uh, Israel was doing in Gaza, but all of the events that have led up to this situation. And that's what I mean by a need to break from the failed paradigm of the past. We really need to get into something that says that human beings are entitled to human rights under international law and that the duty of the international community is to ensure protection for all uh, under the rule of law, but also accountability for perpetrators and redress for uh, victims. So uh, I, I am not surprised uh, at that statement. We've seen a lot of extreme statements from uh, that particular uh, ambassador, a lot of theater 
uh, as well. I don't think we should allow it to distract us to what's happening on the ground, which is the wholesale loss of life of innocent civilians in their thousands, uh, including thousands of, of children in the Gaza Strip, and the need to get to an immediate ceasefire and then to shift into a new approach that will prevent this from happening again and again and again. I'm wondering about the role of Karim Khan, the uh, lead prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. I think he was in Rafa just a few days ago. Um, we see the world's response or the West's response when it came to Russia invading Ukraine uh, and occupying Ukraine. Um, it, Karim Khan, uh, very soon after, opened a whole investigation into crimes against humanity um, uh, that Putin was committing in Ukraine. Can you respond to the difference in approach to Russia and Ukraine uh, and Israel and the occupied territories? Officially, international law, the OPT, the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Well, there has been a stunning inconsistency with the rapidity with which the court was able to move and the prosecutor was able to move with regard to Ukraine and the years upon years in which it has dragged its feet with regard to Palestine. This is just one of many critiques of the court, including the fact that uh, it does not have a very strong record of holding northern uh, countries, Israel, uh, the United States and others, to account for uh, their crimes under international criminal law, and yet is very anxious uh, uh, to move forward on cases in the global south. Now, that is not to condemn the court. The court is a young institution. It needs to uh, be strengthened. It needs to insulate itself from the kinds of political pressure that have led to its inaction in the case of Palestine. But our hope, ultimately, is the peaceful resolution of disputes through the use of international law. And if that's going to happen, we need a robust and fair international criminal court that doesn't provide for exceptionalism for uh, powerful countries of the north, like Israel, for example, uh, but that holds all perpetrators of international crimes uh, to account. The court has a long way to go before it's going to uh, have the reputation that will bring confidence globally uh, that it's meeting its mandate under the Rome Statute. On Monday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre compared pro-Palestinian protesters to the white supremacists who took part in the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, in 2017. She made the comment in response to a question from Fox News' Peter Ducey. Doesn't Biden think the anti-Israel protesters in this country are extremists? What I can say is what we've been very clear about this. When it comes to anti-Semitism, there is no place. We have to make sure that we speak against it very loud uh, and, be, uh, and be very clear about that. Remember, what the president decided to, when the president decided to run for president is what he saw in Charlottesville in 2017, when we, he saw uh, neo-Nazis marching down the streets of Charlottesville uh, with vile anti-Semitic uh, just hatred. And he was very clear then, and he's very clear now. Uh, he's taken actions against this over the past two years, and he's continued to be clear. There is no place, no place for this type of vile and despite, despite this, this kind of rhetoric. So that's President Biden's spokesperson, Karine Jean-Pierre. Craig McIver, your response. Well, I think one of the most disturbing aspects of this current uh, uh, situation in the North, in countries like the U.S. and in Europe, 
has been this rather unprecedented crackdown on human rights defenders speaking up to defend the human rights of people in Gaza uh, during this situation. And that has come from official statements that uh, try to uh, critique in that way people who are defending human rights and to compare them with far-right uh, neo-fascist protesters, for example. I mean, it's, it's an outrageous comparison to make. And it doesn't stop there. We have also seen uh, uh, very strong efforts on the part of government institutions, uh, including uh, local governments and state governments and the federal government and universities and employers and others, uh, to punish people for daring to speak up criticizing the human rights violations that are happening um, uh, or criticizing the U.S. role in, in these violations. But I think what is most hopeful, Amy, and where there is a glimmer of hope, which is, I have to say, moved me very much, it's that people are not allowing themselves to be intimidated by these tactics. We have seen massive demonstrations in all parts of the country and in Europe from people uh, many times risk, risking arrest, uh, risking uh, police beatings, uh, risking other consequences because they refuse to allow this uh, to go forward and to have the human rights claim be silenced. And I think most encouraging, we have seen, you know, just a few blocks from here a few days ago, uh, we saw a, a large group uh, organized by Jewish Voices for Peace, uh, if not now, of Jewish protesters standing up and saying not in our name and taking over Grand Central Station and in one move stripping away the Israeli propaganda point that they are somehow acting in the defense of Jews. Jewish people are not represented by Israel. These protesters have made that perfectly clear. Uh, Israel pushes an old anti-Semitic trope that it somehow represents uh, Jewish people around the world. Not only is that not factual, but it's very dangerous, and everyone needs to know that Israel is a state that's responsible for its own crimes, uh, and that responsibility does not extend to our Jewish brothers and sisters, many of whom are standing up uh, alongside Muslim and Christian uh, and others uh, in demonstrations across this country and across Europe saying that this must end. I wanted to get your response to a comment in The Guardian uh, by Anne Bayefsky, who directs Turo College's Institute on Human Rights and the Holocaust in New York, who accused you of overt anti-Semitism, saying you'd used U.N. letterhead to call for wiping Israel off the map. Craig McIver, uh, if you could respond. Well, uh, Anne Bayefsky is a well-known entity amongst human rights defenders. She has made a career of attacking anyone who dares uh, to criticize Israeli human rights violations in um, particular. Uh, I have responded to this idea of wiping Israel off the map by saying I'm not looking for uh, an end to Israel, I'm looking for an end to apartheid. And it's very telling what Anne Bayeski tweeted uh, in her attack on me. She uh, accused me of anti-Semitism, and the quote that she took from my letter to prove that was my call for equal rights for Christians, Muslims, and Jews. I had to reply to her tweet by saying that she uh, had become a parody of herself, because if calling for equal rights for Christians, Muslims, and Jews is a new form of anti-Semitism, uh, then there's no conversation to, uh, to, to, to be had. But I don't think people are falling for these smears anymore. They are almost automatic. But the point needs to be made again and again that criticism of Israeli human rights violations is not anti-Semitic. Just as criticism of Saudi violations is not Islamophobic, Criticism of Myanmar violations is not anti-Buddhist. Criticism of Indian violations is not anti-Hindu. If any of those are true, then there is no international human rights framework. 
And if only the case of Israel is true, well, that's a racist proposition that only Palestinians can't have their human rights defended in this globe. So I don't think anyone listens too much to those kinds of smears uh, anymore. Uh, and luckily, people are speaking up louder, not lowering their voices to demand human rights in the occupied territories. So what do you go off to do, Craig McIver? I mean, you've been at the United Nations for um, decades. Uh, talk about your plans now. Today is your first day that you're not working at the U.N. Well, I intend to remain involved in the cause of international human rights, in which I've been involved um, since 1980, uh, in, in fact. There's no question um, uh, about that. I will do it under my own name unconstrained by diplomatic protocol and the constraints of the U.N. I will continue to support my colleagues. I, I don't want to leave the impression that I'm criticizing the whole U.N. You know, U.N. humanitarian workers, U.N. human rights workers, the UNRWA colleagues in Gaza, dozens of whom have lost their life just in the last couple of weeks under Israeli bombs, are doing absolutely heroic work all around the world. But I want to try to influence the political side of the House to take up a more realistic and principled approach to this particular conflict, one based in international human rights, one based in international humanitarian law, and one based in achievable goals, if not in the immediate term, uh, of a paradigm based upon equality, an end to apartheid, and as I said, equal rights for Christians, Muslims, and Jews. I wanted to get your final response to the protesters just yesterday in Washington, D.C., uh, in the Senate, repeatedly disrupting Secretary of State Antony Blinken while he was testifying before the Senate uh, on President Biden's request for $106 billion for Ukraine, Israel, and militarizing U.S.-Mexico border. Um, a group of protesters with members of Muslims for Just Futures and Detention Watch Network sitting behind Blinken held up their hands covered in fake blood. He was also interrupted by members of Code Pink, including including the former State Department official Anne Wright, who resigned over the Iraq war. This is what she said. 3,500 kids dead. Come on, I'm an Army colonel. I'm a former diplomat. I resigned on that war in Iraq that you talked about. That was a terrible thing. And what they're doing right now is supporting Israel's genocide of Gaza is a terrible thing, too. Stop the war. Cease fire now. She was holding a sign as she was taken out by security. Ceasefire in Gaza. Craig McIver, your final comments. Well, this is where I find the most uh, hope, Amy. Uh, I have lost confidence in official institutions of government uh, after all these years in the international human rights movement. I am losing hope in international, uh, important parts of international institutions. Where there is hope, it is in civil society. It is in those uh, ordinary people here in the United States and elsewhere who are willing to stand up and demand respect for human life and for human rights. And these kinds of protests uh, in the halls of uh, Congress, uh, before the State Department, in front of the White House, in Grand Central Station, in the streets, everywhere, particularly with this climate that is trying to suppress critique of these current policies, um, it's only going to come from civil society. Craig McIver, we thank you so much, international human rights lawyer.